morning, the word of God comes to us from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 6 to 22. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set off from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted, lifted, lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, and they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they, they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought me brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see all of you. Uh, today we're going to begin where we left off in this uh, beautiful story of redemption that we find in the book of Ruth. And so after experiencing a series of tragedies, such as a loss of her husband and her two sons, Naomi, she finally uh, does what she should have done earlier, which was to leave the fields of Moab and return home to Bethlehem and be among God's people. And so this brings us to today's passage. Uh, I've broken down the message in three parts. It should be no surprise to all of you. Part one, uh, the common choice of Orpah, right, which was to stay in Moab. Part two, the extraordinary faith of Ruth. Uh, we'll be highlighting some of her great qualities. And part three, the bitter Naomi, right, the character here that says, Call me Mara, right? call me bitter because I'm a bitter woman right now. And so uh, we'll look at these three characters one by one. 
Part one, the common choice of Orpah. Now, before we consider Orpah's decision to stay in Moab, uh, we need to try to understand why Naomi would have wanted her daughters-in-law not to follow her to Bethlehem, okay? Uh, the author of Ruth writes as if there was some tension in her heart because we're told that initially, they all went on the way together to return to the land of Judah. And so they packed up their belongings and they're in this together. But then in verse eight, Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, it's like she changed her mind. She all of a sudden says, uh, actually, go and, and return each of you to your mom's house. Right? Go back to your own you know, family's home, essentially. And it says, the Lord... Grant that you might find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and they wept together. And then their response initially was, no, we will return with you to be with your people. You know, they clearly have been through a lot together uh, and they generally have this love and affection for one another. And I have no doubt in my mind that Naomi is driven by a desire to do what she thinks would be best for her two daughters-in-law. Because, as you know, Bethlehem is not their home, and she knows that they wouldn't be treated very well by her own Jewish people, and that they'd very likely be marginalized as outsiders in her community. That was sort of a given. But to complicate things matter more, uh, you know, having both Orpah and Ruth by her side in Bethlehem, it wouldn't make her life any easier either, right? It would kind of be an inconvenience to her as well. Uh, one commentator that I've been heavily relying upon, his name is Duguid, he's pronounced like D-U-G-U-I-D, so not, not exactly sure how to pronounce that, uh, maybe he who knows. <laughs> if you do, let me know. I'm going to go with Duguid, okay? So Duguid writes, they were Moabite women who by their very presence would be a constant reminder to Naomi and all those around her of her sin, right? Naomi's sin in abandoning the promised land and marrying her sons outside the covenant people. I mean, to be clear, if you don't know your Bibles very well, you know, God, it wasn't as if he said you can never marry outside your own ethnic group, right? He, he wasn't promoting, like, racism in that way. It was more you cannot marry outside of your faith, right? You, you cannot marry outside of the covenant community built on this faith that we're establishing built, you know, based on Yahweh and his laws. Uh, but... That was broken. You know, the fact that Naomi had her sons marry, essentially, at the time, pagan, ungodly uh, women, right, who did not follow Yahweh was, was a sin. Uh, and so it's like every time she looked at them, she would have been tormented by a sense of guilt, of failing to trust in the Lord. And that's what the commentator's saying. And I could also see how Orpah and Ruth 
would become a source of great sorrow for her as well, you know, as, as their faces would have constantly reminded her of her two dead sons. So don't you think that would happen too? You know, like, as you look at them, of course you're thinking about your two dead sons. How could you not? And so as they were leaving Moab together, all of these thoughts were probably flooding her mind and she was having these serious doubts which led her to say, you know what, both of you should actually stay in Moab. So I'll go to be with my people. You can go to be with your people. Let's basically separate right now. And so they initially, after hearing this, say, no, we will return with you to your people, mother-in-law. We love you. We want to be with you. But Naomi strongly insists that they should stay in Moab. She puts her foot down. She becomes a little more stern. And she cites the fact that there would be no possibility for them to find a husband within the Jewish community. Right? So this, this emphasis on you will not be able to marry. And you may be thinking, why this fixation upon marriage in this passage? And you know what? The, the passage really, it won't make much sense to you if you're trying to understand this from a sort of a 21st century point of view. You know, because in our day, you know, women, they don't necessarily have to get married to enjoy, you know, financial stability or even social stability, right? But during these ancient times, marriage was much more important to women than it is now, right? just based on those socioeconomic reasons. Naomi even goes so far as to say in verse 11, look, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? And even if I should have a husband this very night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they have grown? I mean, what, what is that about, right? What is, what is she talking about? Well, she's basically referencing Jewish law that obligated men to bear the responsibility of fulfilling the role of husband for any widows in the family. That's what she's referring to. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 says, this is what God, God's law stated uh, for the Jewish people at the time. If, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. No, her husband's brother shall go into her. That's basically saying she'll have sexual union with her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And that, that law sounds very strange to our modern ears, but that ancient law was actually meant to protect and provide for widows during a time when it would have been virtually impossible for, for widows to provide for themselves. It was a means of protection and provision. So that's why there's a strong emphasis made by Naomi right, for them to marry and had children. So verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and began to weep, right? crying and, you know, in some sense they know that she's right, you know, of course you're right. And so Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but it says surprisingly that Ruth clung to her. <laughs> I wish I could have been there to sort of watch that scene in person. You see that contrast going on. 
You know, so Orpah, she does what we would say is rather common and predictable and ordinary. Because what Orpah does here is what most of us would have done if we were in her shoes, right? I mean, she makes a, a very sound, logical choice if, in fact, earthly blessings and comfort is all you knew. Right? I mean, from a worldly point of view, of course she does what is sensible. Did you know that the famous celebrity, is she famous anymore, actually? Oprah Winfrey? I think she's still famous, right? Her original name was Orpah. Did you know that? But people mispronounce her name on a regular basis. She, called, she was called Oprah all the time. Hey, Oprah. Oh, my name's Orpah. Hey, Oprah. And so eventually, she changed her name to Oprah. And the irony is that both Orpah and Oprah are similar in character. Right? They forfeit the opportunity to follow the one true God by choosing to stay in Moab. It's like, I tried this Christianity stuff and it just didn't work, so I'm gonna go back to my own gods. Essentially what is being done here. And even Naomi knew what Orpah's decision ultimately meant because later she tells Ruth, see, your sister-in-law, Orpah, has gone back to her people and to her gods. As you know, it went hand in hand. You go back to your people, you gotta go back with, to be with their gods as well. Right? And as I mentioned last Sunday, they worship not Yahweh, but the pagan god Chemosh and Moloch. Brothers, sisters, if you wanna know what people really believe deep down in their hearts, do not look at what they simply say. Look at what they do. Look at the kind of decisions they make. Watch how they live. That will tell you what they actually believe deep down inside. Okay? That's how I learn to assess character in the long run. You gotta, you gotta look at what they actually do because everyone says the same things. Everyone knows what to say in a given context, you know? You gotta see what they do what decisions they make. Here there's a clear contrast made between the decision of Orpah and that of Ruth. Both of them say the same things, notice, right? But their actions are the complete opposite. There's a contrast there, which takes us to our second part, Ruth's extraordinary faith. Behold the character of Ruth Amazing woman. If your widowed mother-in-law insisted that you not follow her, please do not follow me. Like she's practically begging you not to follow her. Go back to be with your own parents, she tells you. How many of you would, would choose to stick with your mother-in-law Instead, how many? <laughs> don't, don't raise your hand, okay? I don't want to. <laughs> how, 
How many of you love your mother-in-law that much? See, when I put it that way, Ruth's decision is extremely odd and surprising, isn't it? This is not normal. This is humanly impossible. And for that reason, I do not think Ruth's decision was primarily driven by her affection for her mother-in-law. I'm not saying that she didn't care for her mother-in-law, but that was not her primary motive. Because there is no woman in the world who would make such a humanly illogical decision unless she was driven by something greater, a greater love, a greater affection for the Lord. She had an affection that was greater for the Lord instead. She knows that if she goes to Moab, she would have to worship Chemosh. If she goes to Bethlehem, though, she gets to worship. Not she has to, she gets to worship Yahweh. Listen to what Ruth says in verse 16. This is incredible language. This is not common language. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. This is covenantal language. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. You cannot speak this way unless you actually believe that Yahweh, God, has a real authority over your life. And you think about what she's actually saying here, given the social and cultural context she's living in. I mean, she's basically saying she is willing to live as a widow and be childless for the rest of her life. That may not sound like a big deal to you now, but back in those days, this is huge, incredible. And when she says, I will be buried there, right, the obvious assumption is that she will die many years after her mother-in-law Naomi dies, Right? Of course, she's younger. And so she's not saying, look, mother-in-law, I love you, and I'm gonna help you until you die, okay? And then afterwards, only then will I return home to my parents' house. That's not what she's saying, right? She's saying, even when I'm completely alone, even after you pass, I am not going back to Moab. Why? Because, again, her reason, I believe, for clinging to Naomi has, has everything to do with her commitment to God more than anything else. What a beautiful, godly woman. Aren't you all of a sudden attracted to her now? Right? Sister, you should aspire to be like this woman. You should aspire to possess this Ruth-like faith. Brothers, this is the kind of woman you should want to marry. Amen? Fathers and mothers, this is the kind of daughter you should seek to train up. I know that her, her name, the name itself, Ruth, is not like aesthetically pleasing to the ear. Ruth. 
But this is a beautiful character. I'm done having kids, but if God were to surprise me with another one, right, another daughter, I would name her Ruth, okay? Right. <laughs> There's another aspect of Ruth's decision that could be easily overlooked, and it's the fact that when we commit, don't laugh, when we commit ourselves to the Lord, we're also committing ourselves to God's people, no matter how difficult God's people may be, okay? Uh, our commentator, Duguid, he writes, I love this, choosing the way of Ruth not only means identifying with Israel's God, it also means identifying, check this out, with a stubborn an often offensive people that God calls his own. Ouch, right? Ruth found no warm welcome from Naomi or from the women of Bethlehem, yet she committed herself to Naomi and her kin. So too, we may often find the Lord's people to be a rather disappointing bunch. I'm sure we could actually all relate, you know? Because um, we, we've often... We know how to be self-critical too, and I'm sure you had experience interacting with other believers and like, why, you know, how? <laughs> uh, but he continue, yet flawed as the people of God are, if the Lord is to be our God, then his people must also be our people. We need to hear that. You know, uh, how different is Ruth's response compared to what we often hear from people in our present culture? Very different. It's complete opposite, you know. <laughs> what do you hear often? Maybe even from your own hearts. What comes out of you? Right? <laughs> I've seen so much drama in the church, you know. Yeah, I, I learned, uh, well, I've been learning throughout the years. We have so many PKs in the church. I don't know why our church attracts all these PKs. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Don't, don't leave. I'm just saying. <laughs> but I tell you, PKs, they experience so much drama growing up in the church. But how often have you heard? I've seen so much drama in the church, and that's why I can't be part of this corrupt body of believers. You know? Or I've deconverted because, look, there's so many hypocrites in the Christian church. That is what we often hear. But Ruth is different. Ruth, your people will be my people. Your God, my God. That's a solemn oath. It's like she's marrying herself to the body of believers. <clears throat> and so verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She shut herself up, right? And I would have shut up too once it became clear to me that Ruth's choice wasn't based so much on her affection for me, but her affection for the Lord. There was something deeper going on in her heart. You know, when, when someone basically tells you that they're making a deeper religious decision, right? A decision based on a 
deeper conviction right, that's theological in nature, right? Connected to God, not so much to you. I mean, good luck with changing that person's mind. It's not gonna happen because there's a deeper anchor, right? There's a deeper root. And Naomi noticed that kind of faith in Ruth that she wasn't able to see an Orpah, and once she saw it, she knew that she could no longer argue with Ruth, and so she shut up, right? She said no more. I mean, doesn't tell us when Ruth came to trust in God in this way, but there was a span of 10 years where God could have granted her such faith, and thankfully he did, because what a beautiful character she's become. This takes us to part three, the bitter Naomi. Okay? There's not only a contrast made between Orpah and Ruth, but also Ruth and Naomi here. Okay? Naomi is bitter. But first, let's look at 19. Verse 19 says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this, is this Naomi? Naomi, is this you? Notice the author specifies that the two of them went on together, and when they, the two of them, went on to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of the two of them, right? But then the women, they only bothered to ask about only one of them, Naomi. Is this Naomi? It's like you see two people, but it's as if the other person isn't really important, that's what, you ha- that's what happens when you walk into a foreign land among a foreign people, right? I mean, what a, what a warm welcome for Ruth. Um, but I'm sure that's what she expected. Right? That's why she made the solemn commitment. Your people, my people, right? Your God, my God. You don't have to make such promises if you know it's gonna be easy sailing, right? Because you know it's gonna be hard, that's why you make such promises, You know that's what you do in marriage too. You know it's gonna be hard. Therefore, you make such promises, right? For better, for worse, right? For richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. Till death do us part. That's that's why you say such things. Same thing with Ruth, right? Ruth is being marginalized and dismissed on day one. (laughs) Not only though by the woman of Bethlehem, but also by Naomi, her mother-in-law herself. Think about how Ruth would have felt hearing her own mother-in-law speak the words in verse 20. She says, do not call me Naomi, pleasant or sweet. Call me Mara instead. Call me bitter because I'm a bitter woman, right? For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went, I went away, I went away full. I was full when I left Bethlehem but the Lord has brought me back empty. I got nothing. I am empty. So if you're Ruth, what are you thinking? Did you just say empty? <laughs> right? The Lord has brought you back empty? What, what, am, I, am I nothing to you? <laughs> Have I just not given my life to you? So Ruth gets no love or respect from her own mother-in-law. Completely dismissed. Like, come on, come on, Naomi. Right? You should know better, right? 
Naomi, Naomi, you are acting more like what we would expect to see from an unbelieving Moabite woman. How can you not see the gift that God has given to you in Ruth, a true Gentile convert who understands covenant loyalty? This is not common at all. It's a gift. But no, Naomi has become so blinded by her Bitterness, she is a bitter woman. I mean, so far, have you seen any evidence of sorrow or repentance over her experience in Moab? No, I, it's, it's not there in the pages. There's no evidence of her repentance over anything. And when she had this golden opportunity to teach her daughters-in-law that Look, Orpah, Ruth, there's much more to this life than earthly blessing and comfort. You know, worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, is far more important than anything else in this life. She could have done that. What did she do instead? She chose the more convenient and pragmatic solution of just being nice, just being unoffensive. Basically saying, look, I just, I just want you two to be happy. Go back to your homes and just be happy. So lame. So lame. This, this, this instant reminded me of a mom who had a chance to speak at a senior banquet for my old youth group in Philly. She had one chance to say something meaningful to her son who was at the time, in my estimation, spiritually lost. And this is what she chose to say. Son, Whatever you choose to do, I don't care what it is. Whatever you choose to do, I just want you to be happy. Guess what I was thinking? Lame. Lame. It's so lame. You missed the chance to speak some truth. And so at this point in the story, it's hard to sense any godly qualities in Naomi. And yet, God deals with her patiently, gently. You'll see that by the end of the story, she'll kind of snap out of this bitter spell. But in the meantime, she's not a very attractive person. I mean, who looks at Naomi right now and says, oh, I, I love to name my kid Naomi. It's just hard to do that right now, right? She's just very bitter, nasty. We can say, though, uh, that on the one hand, Naomi's Basic theology is pretty sound since she knows that God is the one who is sovereign, that God is the one who ultimately is, has brought calamity upon her. He, he is the one ultimately in charge. And there's nothing wrong in knowing that God orchestrates everything in life because it's true. And I, I wish more people would know that and believe that. Naomi's problem, though, is that she is unable to rest in God's sovereign purposes for her life. There's no resting in that knowledge. All she can do is express bitterness toward God and live with this unpleasant, self-pitying attitude. Even though she would have been very familiar with the story of Joseph and how God 
brought forth tremendous good from the multiple tragedies of Joseph's life. And she would also have heard of the stories of how God's people wandered through the wilderness and came to a place called Mara. And I have no doubt that's why she used that name in this story. But in that wilderness journey, God's people, they came to a place called Mara, and the water was bitter. <laughs> they started grumbling. And in spite of their grumbling, God turned the bitter water of Mara into water that was sweet. She would have known that. And yet she pouts. And she has the audacity to declare herself to be Mara instead. Like, I don't care what God did in the past. I am bitter. And I'm going to stay bitter. I'm not saying the life was easy for her or that her tragedies were not real, but brothers and sisters, none of us should think that it's okay for anyone to live with such a bitter spirit. As believers, especially as new covenant people, right, this is my plug for class later on, okay, if you missed class, if you don't know what covenant theology, if you don't know what I mean by new covenant people, then you need to attend class, Okay. Pastor Hugh and Pastor Jacob did a good job unpacking what that means, new covenant versus old covenant. But especially as new covenant people who have been given this greater revelation, this greater knowledge as compared to the people of the old covenant, we ought to know better. We cannot, we cannot dwell in bitterness. We ought to know better. We know more than what Naomi knew. Think about it this way. If, if Naomi knew that Ruth was going to become the grandmother of King David and the ancestor of Christ, do you think that she would have responded differently to her tragedies? I think she would have. But interpreting your life through the eyes of faith, right, would require some measure of Humility, right, and patience. And as Pastor Jacob called us to worship earlier, it would require some waiting, right, upon the Lord. That kind of patience, right, waiting, trusting in God's timing. Duguid writes, like Naomi, we may be so busy complaining about our emptiness that we miss the fact that God has emptied our hands only in order to fill them with something so much better. Have you thought of that possibility? We should all realize that if God did not empty Naomi's hands, Naomi would have stayed in Moab and she would have died there. Not only that, she would have remained the selfish and ungodly woman she was when, we, when she first entered into Moab. No change of heart. And that, that dynamic applies to all of us, right? And so we should never respond to our life's trials with bitterness. We should not wallow in self-pity. 
All those are a path to destruction. That's one reason why our culture is so much, so in trouble, I should say. Everyone's claiming to be wronged in some way. Everyone's the victim. Everyone demands something, some kind of recompense. It's always the other person's fault, right? That's why it causes in trouble. I hope you know that there's only one person in all of history who was entitled to bitterness and self-pity because he alone was completely without sin and was wrongfully accused. He fed the poor, he healed the sick, he even raised the dead, and yet he was despised and rejected by those he came to serve. But even as he hung on the cross, he did not curse God, for he knew that he was the greater Joseph, and that God's purpose all along was to bring forth an outpouring of an unimaginable blessing to all the nations through the evil committed against him. And my question to all of us this morning is this, if God accomplished his redemptive work through the greatest injustice that has ever been committed in this world, through Jesus Christ, why should we ever doubt that he would bring forth good from our own relatively smaller trials in life? Do you not know that God has promised us life abundant in Christ? So brothers and sisters, my hope is that God would use this message today to help carry you through the trials you've been called to endure. Not just to endure them, but to endure them with joy and much hope. You know, you can choose to live like most people in the world and grow bitter toward God while denying all the wisdom, goodness, mercy, and love that he displayed. Or you can place your trust in God who turns the bitter waters of Mara into the sweet, everlasting fountain of life. Sometimes it takes some extra time for us to, to snap out of the spell of bitterness because we're such a stubborn people. But God is calling us right now right, to look away from ourselves and to look to Christ and to be free from all bitterness so that we would be able to once again live out our God-given purposes to love God and to love our neighbors well. You can't love God. You cannot love your neighbors while you're paralyzed with this bitter spirit within you. So brothers and sisters, I pray that by the grace of God, you would be free from bitterness and unrighteous anger. As Christians, you have been given the sweet name of Jesus, and you are never, ever to declare yourselves to be Mara. Embrace the name that you've been given by your precious Savior, Jesus, and learn to live out 
that life with joy and much hope in his promises. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us the story of Ruth and for this needed reminder that you are sovereign even over the great tragedies of our lives. We can surely relate to Orpah's choice to stay in Moab because we are often tempted to do the same. Though we, though we may be tempted, we pray for grace to embrace the new life you granted us in Christ and the daily practice, the extraordinary faith we see in our sister Ruth, even when we find ourselves in unfamiliar territory. Help us to remember that we are not alone in this journey and that you are God, Emmanuel, who is with us in every circumstance of life. We can also relate well to Naomi and the bitterness and self-pitying spirit we see in her because that's how we naturally respond when life becomes hard for us, we confess. But may this story remind us that your plan is greater than we know and that you have come to redeem and restore the brokenhearted. You have clearly demonstrated that through your son who endured the greatest injustice in all of history and yet was willing to submit himself to your wisdom. And so as we consider our Savior's love for us and his ability to peacefully rest in your sovereign plans, may we know that we are called to do the same. It's in his name we pray, amen. We'll stand together and give praise to God.